Okay, Heidi, we've got something coming up right now that's really interesting because uh, we are going to have a panel. It's going to be moderated by Elizabeth Boyson. And Elizabeth is a good friend of ours with uh, Helping Parents Heal. She heads it. And she is an international, it's an international support group for parents and families who have had a child pass. She has a... Uh, she also is the Hoping Parents Heal news editor. Hi, Elizabeth. And uh, after life leader of the Phoenix Scottsdale group. And Elizabeth has two children who passed, Chelsea, when she was two days old, and Morgan, who transitioned at the base camp at Mount Everest when he was only 20. Elizabeth's the author of Life After Life, Helping Parents Heal. She's also a certified yoga instructor and teaches yoga for healing grief and thank you so much for heading this panel elizabeth we really appreciate that so we're going to move right on and introduce the panel so you guys can get started on this exciting topic i am so happy to see both of you it's always wonderful to see both of you so we have four incredible bright lights from the afterlife and grief community here today and i am so grateful to have all of them here and i'm going to start out by introducing suzanne giesman who is a spiritual teacher, author, and medium who has been recognized on the Watkins list of the 100 most spiritually influential living people. She's a former Navy commander and aide to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. She now shares the awakened way, a path to living a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Her gift of multidimensional communication has been verified by noted afterlife researchers. Her messages bring not only hope, but healing and love that go straight to the heart. And then sitting near on the screen is Jeffrey Olson. He is the best-selling author of Knowing, who inspires audiences internationally with his intriguing story of perseverance and inner strength. After a horrific automobile accident took the lives of his wife and youngest son, also inflicting multiple life-threatening injuries to Jeff, including the amputation of his left leg. He found the courage to survive over 18 surgeries to eventually heal both physically and emotionally and to thrive in his career and community contributions. Among all of Jeff's accomplishments, he is most proud of and most fulfilled by simply being a husband, father, and friend. Dr. Christopher Kerr is the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Executive Officer at Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo. Dr. Kerr's background in research has evolved from bench lines towards the human experience of illness as witnessed from the bedside, specifically patients' dreams and visions of the end of, end of life. To date, the research team at Hospice Buffalo has published multiple studies on this topic and documented over 1,500 end-of-life events, many of which are videotaped. This work was also featured in a docu-series on Netflix called Surviving Death and a PBS documentary called Death is But a Dream. Dr. Kerr's work was also published in a book entitled Death is But a Dream in 2020, and it is available in uh, multiple languages. And then Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll, during his 25 years as an emergency physician, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll saw, saw souls leave their bodies at death and communicated with them. 
His experiences began in childhood after his brother passed in a farm accident. After decades of silence, Dr. O'Driscoll published his award-winning memoir, Not Yet. As an international speaker and intuitive mentor, he connects souls to their highest self and their most authentic life path. So I am so excited to be able to ask these questions that have uh, been given to me by these wonderful presenters. And I'm just going to go through one at a time. And although um, each of these presenters could easily speak for at least an hour about these questions, um, the answers need to be limited to about two minutes each because of time constraints for the conference. So we're going to start with Suzanne Giesman, Messenger of Hope. And her first question is, how do I know my loved one who has passed is okay now? So Suzanne, if you could answer that for us, we would love that. Sure. Thank you, Elizabeth. We know in our hearts that all is well, because that's where we connect soul to soul eternally with our loved ones. There's just a knowing that, that something survives death. When you look at a body, as I did, looking at my stepdaughter who had passed in the coffin, I just knew you couldn't kill the spirit. And that's the part of us that is always here and always accessible. So we know that they're fine. It's the human fears and the human thinking that causes us to think that something might be wrong or we'll never see them again. So with that awareness that there's a part of you that can connect with your loved one, you can move your awareness to the heart, take a few deep breaths, calm down and send your love to them and ask them to make a connection with you. Practice this regularly, just a few minutes a day, and you can train your brain to become more, get more into a whole brain state so that you can start really feeling their presence. In the meantime, ask for signs, look for signs. When you get synchronicities that you can't deny that your loved ones are still with you, don't chalk it up to imagination or coincidence. Thank them for that, and you'll get more of these signs. That's how it works. So start with belief, set the intention to make the connection, and then sit regularly, quieting the brain, and connect from the heart. That's beautiful. What a wonderful answer. And I agree 100%. And we're moving on from Suzanne to Jeffrey Olson. Um, again, Jeffrey was in that very difficult accident. He has rebuilt his life. How has a near-death experience influenced your everyday life, Jeffrey? It's a great question. And it, it doesn't take the near-death experience to influence our everyday lives. I mean, for me, the, the most important thing is to realizing that the little things are the big things. You know, I, I, it, the accident was horrible. Um, we lost half the family. It injured me. I did have a near-death experience where my soul left the body. Now, that was a huge cheat sheet for me because I realized, wow, at death, nothing's over. Um, we continue. We're eternal beings. And I experienced that. So that was no longer a philosophy or theology. It was an experience. In experiencing that, in my everyday life, I realized the little things are the big things. And sometimes those little things are the connections with those who have passed. The knowing that they're there. They're cheering us on. They love us. They grieve with us. They watch us. 
I believe time may be different for them. You know, for us, it seems like a lifetime, sometimes getting even from one day to the next. Uh, but I feel that they look at it and say, well, we'll have lunch and then we'll be together again and all will be well. But they cheer us on. And that's that's changed my life to be open to that connection. And even the everyday things, you know, people have said to me, wow, your life must have been spared for some great cause. And I say, yeah, you know, to play catch with my son or to watch one more sunset or to, you know, hold your lover's hand, whatever those little things are, they become so big and so meaningful. So embrace that, embrace those things. And when people have passed and we miss them and we grieve for them, that's love. We only grieve because we love them so deeply and uh, realize they're right there with us. And if we miss them, we'll do something for someone who's here, you know, do something wonderful for a stranger, for someone that's with you and really embrace those beautiful moments that we have that are a gift. That is so beautiful. Thank you. And, you know, I, I just want to quickly say that you wrote the most beautiful book with your son, Spencer, called Where Are You? And it's not just for children, although it's kind of made as a children's book. It's for everyone. And hopefully everyone will be able to find out about that book, uh, maybe on the website. Um for Christopher, Dr. Christopher Kerr, um, what are the main conclusions from your research examining patients' inner experiences at end of life? So if you could tell us a little bit about that, it's absolutely fascinating. Sure. Um, I'm a hospice and palliative care physician, and our team was really interested in um, the less visible side of dying, which is the subjective or the experiential aspects of dying. And we've published approximately seven or eight studies. And what we sought to do initially was just talk to patients daily and we're using a quantifiable questionnaire. And we ruled out things like confusion. And we were just trying to understand the view from the bed. What was it they were experiencing? And what we found was that nearly 90% of people were, ex were describing what we called an end-of-life experience. The closest nomenclature we have is dreams, but they were somewhat qualitatively very distinct. These were very vivid, rich, detailed um, experiences that were uh, recalled with clarity. The vast majority of them were profoundly comforting. As we tracked people as they got closer to death, the theme or the content would change. They started to see more and more and more of the deceased, people that they loved. And it was almost like this editing process. The people who loved them and unconditionally and secured them the most were the people who were most predominant. And time seemed to vanish. So if you were 95 years old and you lost your mother when you were five, it was her voice you heard say, I love you, her presence you felt. When we measured comfort relative to the content, we found that seeing the deceased um, was associated with the greatest level of comfort. So there's almost this built-in mechanism that as you get closer to death, with increasing frequency, you have these sort of um, dreams of familiarity of people who you loved. And the overarching theme is really to validate or affirm the life that was led, and in doing so, reduce the fear of death. That's beautiful. And it's also wonderful to be able to see the documentary, to read the book as well, um, and to hear you speak about it. And 
Um, thank you for answering that question. You know, I think we're going through these questions very quickly, so we might have more time um, for the last question, which is really good. So um, let's keep going with uh, Dr. Jeff as well. Um, what did May, uh, being an emergency physician teach you about those who have passed? So this is for you, Dr. Jeff. You're muted. I, I think the most profound thing it taught me is that our loved ones still care about us, that they're happy, and that they are comfortable with where they are. And they're always so grateful. Um, your earlier guest, Jeff Olson, uh, mentioned about his horrible accident. Well, I was the emergency physician. I was one of the physicians in the emergency department when he was flown to the hospital. And I knew his wife was deceased at the scene and her, her physical remains were still there. And yet when I went into the drum room, just on the gurney, I saw his wife uh, standing in the air above the gurney and she filled the room with brilliance and, and, and light and glory, if you will, and, and expressed her profound gratitude for the care that her husband was receiving, that Jeff was receiving. So for me, it was a very profound experience uh, of the attitude that these uh, souls have when they leave their bodies. Um, I had other experiences, many of them in the emergency department. I had a woman that asked me for assistance uh, telepathically. She was unconscious. She was intubated. They were doing chest compressions. And she asked me if she could leave. Uh, there was another doctor running the, the resuscitation. I had no responsibility for her medical care, but telepathically, I communicated back to her. I said, I think if you feel it's the right time to go and you think that's the right thing to do, it's probably okay. And as I communicated that silently to her, she rose up out of her body and she stood in the air above the gurney. She looked about half the age of the body she'd just come out of. And she thanked me profoundly for the help that I'd given, which I th thought was nothing. It, I thought I'd done nothing, but it meant something to her. Sometimes they come to give us comfort and sometimes they come to receive help. And it's important for us to be conscious of that and be willing and able to, to provide what's needed and receive what's given. That is absolutely amazing. And the story that the two of you two, the two of you share is just incredible. It's I, I can never listen to it enough because being able to hear about how the two of you changed each other's lives is is just so wonderful. Um, and we we've gotten through the first uh, four questions. So we're going to start again with Suzanne and um, start with our second question. And I'm excited that we're able to move so quickly. Um, her question is, how can I begin to make a connection with my loved one? on the other side, on my own. So Suzanne, can you give us a little help with that? Yes, I think it's important to understand that we all can make this connection. I'm, I've been working as a medium since 2009, and I'm so thrilled to be able to discern evidence from those who have passed that, that goes beyond the preponderance of the doubt that lets us know that there is an afterlife, which my team and spirit has told me to call the ever life because life is ongoing. But I, I hear Jeff, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll's story about being with Jeff Olson and seeing his deceased wife there in the emergency room. And I'm envious of that. I don't think that all mediums have to see the spiritual body there. It just doesn't work that way. And yet I know that all of us 
can learn to discern a presence and through intention and asking, we can all learn to pick up evidence, facts that we don't know, even from our loved ones. So it again begins with the belief that it's possible for any of us to tune into anybody who's now in the non-physical world and the physical world. We're connecting soul to soul using the right brain more than the left brain. And that's the challenge for most humans is that we're so used to thinking and logically using the rational left brain that we tune out that creative aspect of the right brain with which we connect to the non-physical world. So a regular practice of slowing down your brain waves from the normal waking consciousness to a more expanded state, which you can achieve in just a few nice slow breaths. I have a practice online, you can look it up, it's called the sip of the divine. So don't even call it meditation, it's sitting in peace slowing down the brain for just three minutes a day. So no more excuses that you can't do this or can't find the time. And in that quiet state with the intention to connect with higher consciousness, whether that's a loved one who has passed, your own higher self, it's all connected in the non-physical realm. You can ask questions. And once you start to get answers from a place where you wouldn't normally think it would come, that is, what did Einstein say? All solutions come from a higher level. None of them come at the level at which they're created. When you start receiving information that's helpful in healing, stay with the practice. And soon through your efforts from the belief and the intention, you will start to hear things from your loved one that you know you're not just making it up because that's what everybody says. Well, that was a beautiful message, but how do I know it's not just my imagination? Well, it comes with this heartfelt feeling that you can't deny is their presence, but ask them to prove it to you. Ask them to tell you something you don't know about somebody else in your life. Stay with that and then the miracles will happen. And a miracle for me is just when the veil parts and we can no longer deny they're still right here. And they are still right here. I love that. Uh, I love saying that too, because it's just such a beautiful way to explain to everyone that yes, we we know that our kids have transitioned, but they are still right here with us. Um, so Jeffrey Olson, uh, what simple things do you do to stay connected to your loved ones who have passed? So um, similar to what Suzanne is saying, but maybe in your personal life, what do you do? to stay connected? That's a, it's a great question. And I, I love that because what we do is we celebrate them as if they were here. We still have birthdays and make a cake and we release balloons. And uh, like Suzanne has shared so eloquently, yes, we can have a conversation. Um, I did this just this weekend. I got with my son, Spencer, and this is the anniversary month of our accident. In fact, in a few weeks, it will be 26 years. So Spencer's a grown man now, and, you know, he's married and living his own life. But we went to the cemetery, which, you know, you don't have to go to the cemetery to feel near your loved one. And he he took my arm as I attempted to walk through three feet of snow to get to the gravesite. But we actually sat down or knelt down right there in the snow. And we still shed tears. And he brought such a special thing to me. He has held on since the accident. So for 26 
years, he's had these things in a special box that he's kept. He handed me Griffin's shoes, his little brother, my little boy who passed in the accident, who was just a toddler. And he had brought those shoes as a token of remembering. And we each held a little shoe and we, we did shed tears. 26 years and the tears still come. And yet here was two grown men unashamedly weeping in joy, in gratitude that, hey, we had those 14 months. We have each other now. And we have the, the, the connection that they're still with us. We, we laugh and say, hey, guardian angels are real for us. Griffin is our special guardian. He looks after us and watches over us. And as we held his little shoes, that was very poignant for us, a very connected thing. Do those things. And yes, the tears come. It's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to have those emotions come up. And uh, if two grown men can kneel down in the snow and cry holding toddler shoes, Certainly you can too, and that's healing. It's a release. And yet it's always in joy. As we stood there arm in arm and wiped our tears, we did laugh and said, wow, 26 years. But here you are, and here I am, and here they are with us. And uh, do those things. Celebrate them as if they're right here. Live your life as if you're honoring their lives in your choices, in your compassion, in your kindness. And by all means, be kind to yourself and realize that they love you and to love yourself is a beautiful thing because it's honoring them. That's beautiful. And I think that being able to honor them by that beautiful book that you and Spencer wrote is so, is so heartwarming as well. And thank you for that, that wonderful answer. We have about two minutes per question for, uh, for Dr. Christopher Kerr and for uh, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll. Um, for Dr. Christopher Kerr, are there unique features to the experiences children describe at the end of life? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, we're fortunate here. We have a pediatric palliative and hospice program and care for about 130 children a day. Um, and we've published the results and videotaped many of these children in the same study that I described earlier, where we would ask them about um, their experiences. And not surprisingly, children do this in more creative uh, and uh, illustrative ways. The, the, the themes, again, are very much the same. Um, oftentimes, our children obviously don't have references for death or mortality, um, and they may not have known somebody who has died, but generally speaking, they know of an animal that has, whether it's theirs and neighbors or grandmothers. Um, and oftentimes, they uh, speak of having dreams um, that are very intense. They're coming back, the animals, and, and they look healthy. The message is the same. Uh, actually, it's remarkable how children will use the same language to describe these events, that they're, it means that they're not alone, um, that they're going to be okay, and that they're loved. Um, they'll often create circumstances, almost like another environment for themselves. So we have children who have described castles and fill it with senses. So there's light and warmth and all of these other feelings that make them feel secure. Um, we've had children who have worried, um, who are they? How do they do go on without um, a parent? And that parent figure has been replaced by somebody they may have known who has passed. 
Um, and again, the idea is that they're okay and that they're loved and that they're secure. Um, overwhelmingly, these are positive. And the other fascinating thing that I, I'm always intrigued by is how self-informing these experiences are for the children, where in a physician role, you're always concerned um, what is their understanding, uh, et cetera. And they seem to, um, they seem to get uh, full and rich um, uh, interpretation of what all of this means for them, but it's not distressing. That's beautifully said, and um, thank you. And we might have a, enough time for Jeff to answer this very important last question. What do you say to those who feel that they have no connection with their deceased loved ones? Do you have a, an answer that you can give to all of us about this um, to help us out as we move forward? You're muted though. Can you unmute? Sorry. Um, sorry. For 25 years in the emergency department, I didn't talk about my experiences and I had no plan to do so. But about six months after I stopped practicing medicine, uh, I, something switched and I knew it was okay to talk about it. And six months later, I'd written my book. And now I have clients all over the world in countries around the globe that I meet with to talk about these things because it's so common and people wanna know more. We remain connected to our loved ones. I know this. My brother came to me many years after he died and he said, you have to go talk with our mother. There's things she's never told you about my death. I had a very enlightening conversation with my mother and she told me a great many things that I hadn't known. And years later, my brother came again to me and he, he showed me that he took me through this beautiful place and, and, and he showed me my life in review. He showed me the profound days when my life had changed trajectory in some way and how he intervened on my behalf on those days. And then he showed me the day my, that he died, but he showed it to me from the perspective of my parents. And I experienced their loss and their grief, their pain, their sorrow. It was, it was horrific. And then he looked at me and he said, Go tell our parents not to be sad anymore. Tell them I'm okay and I want them to be happy when they talk about me. I so resonate with what Jeff Olson said earlier. It's okay to grieve and be sad and be happy and laugh at the same time. Think about the things that made your loved ones happy. Think about the things they did that made you laugh. Remember those things in the depth of your grief and experience all of those human emotions at once. We are connected. We have never not been connected and we continue to be connected and we can, we, we can yield ourselves to that and embrace it. Elizabeth, I wanna thank you for this fabulous panel you've created today. And with Elizabeth and Suzanne and Christopher and the two Jeffs, thank you so much for being on our show. It's just been inspirational. The loss of a loved one can leave you feeling depressed angry, alone, lost. But you don't have to face this journey on your own. Open to Hope is a free community for anyone who has experienced loss. Find support. Find help. Find hope. Give grief a voice at opentohope.com.